Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the first of a new sub-series of podcast episodes. We already have a sub-series on great sea fights, and I'd urge you to go and listen to the episodes dedicated to the Battle of the River Plate of 1939 and the Battle of St Vincent of 1797, just 142 years before. This new series is entitled Iconic Ships. It has been conceived as an opportunity for curators of famous historic vessels to make a case as to why their ship is iconic. But I've also opened it up to historians who can make a case for a historic vessel that no longer survives. Once we have sufficient entries, we will open this up to you, our wonderful listeners, and we will run a poll. Yes, we will have an international vote to see who we can crown as the Society for Nautical Research's iconic ship for 2021. It will be as contentious as Brexit, certainly, but I can promise that it will be a lot more fun. There are going to be entries from all over the world, but we are starting this week with a double header. We have one from the past and one from the present. So without further ado, here is the excellent Chris Dobbs, who will be talking about the Mary Rose, the mighty Tudor warship which sailed in Henry VIII's navy but sank off Portsmouth in the summer of 1545. Yes, that's 476 years ago. But it was then found by archaeologists and raised to the surface in 1982, along with tens of thousands of artefacts that bring to life Tudor seafaring. She is now on display at the National Museum of the Royal Navy in Portsmouth and is without doubt one of the most important historical artefacts in the world, let alone one of the most iconic of ships. Chris Dobbs will be making the case for the Mary Rose. Chris is head of interpretation at the Mary Rose, but began his work there as one of the archaeological supervisors in charge of excavating the contents of the shipwreck. In 1982, he changed to the salvage diving team and was one of the divers working underwater as she came to the surface on October the 11th, 1982. 
Chris then worked on other projects in a number of countries before returning to the Mary Rose Trust as the archaeologist responsible for recording the hull and reinstating the deck timbers that had been removed underwater. For the last ten years, Chris has been working on the interpretation, the ideas and content for the new museum that opened in July 2016. Chris also has an international reputation, having been chairman and now vice president of the Influential Nautical Archaeology Society. He is the UK representative on the International Committee on Underwater Cultural Heritage and chairman of the Maritime Archaeology Committee of the International Congress of Maritime Museums. In short... Chris is the most perfect person to be making a case that one of the world's most iconic ships is indeed the Mary Rose. My task in this podcast is to tell you why the Mary Rose is the most iconic ship that ever sailed. I'm Christopher Dobbs and I'm Head of Interpretation at the Mary Rose Trust and I've been involved with this ship for 42 years. So I agree with you that I'm biased, but I know that by the end of this podcast, you will agree with me that the Mary Rose is deservedly the most iconic ship. So why is it iconic? I think it's uh, really because it's iconic for so many different reasons, as we'll see during the podcast. But let's start with the boring bits, although perhaps I shouldn't call them that. The history. So it's an iconic period of British history. Henry VIII ordered the building of the ship in 1510, January 1510, just after he'd come to the throne. And it served him extremely well for 34 years. It didn't sink on its maiden voyage like many people seem to think it did. It's just something that's got into the history books and into the press, I suppose. But it was also his ship. He owned it and everything on it. Unlike modern ships that are owned by the Ministry of Defence or the Navy or the, the state, he, he, he owned it. It was an iconic ship of an iconic king. As part of its life, it fought in three French wars. And sadly, it, yes, it did capsize and sink in 1545 in a battle against the French. It was a French invasion fleet just off the coast of England, just at the Isle of Wight. They'd already landed troops on the Isle of Wight. They had 200 ships, 20,000 men. Enormous number of people. It was a bigger armada than the Spanish armada of 43 years later. And yet we seem to uh, spend a lot of our history lessons at school learning about the Spanish armada, but not about the French armada. And we won that battle. If we hadn't won it, I think we'd all be speaking French now. It was such an important and pivotal part of our history. So as well as being a, a, a central part of that um, important historical period, the ship herself was revolutionary. She was revolutionary in that she was one of the first ships to be built as a warship from the start. Previously, ships were often borrowed by the king from say, traders, and they would have guns and extra pieces added to them so that they could go to war. But the Mary Rose was built as one from the start. It had high castles at the front and the back, nowadays called the Stern Castle and the, and the Forecastle, Foxel. But in those days, it gave you an advantage over the enemy because you could, you could fire your guns and shoot your arrows down on the opposing ships. But critically, it also had gun ports fitted, 
and gun ports with lids. And this meant that you could have much heavier guns in the ship because they could be mounted much lower in the ship and you would only open the gun ports when you were going to battle or when you were actually fighting so that you, you were preserving your waterline but you could have these heavy guns. So that was really quite revolutionary and it did contribute to her sinking in the end because they failed to close the gun ports when they were um, battling against the French and that caused the disaster. But she was very successful up until that point. She was also built out of carval planking and carval planking is a way of joining the planks together edge to edge uh, rather than having them overlapping in the previous clinker style. And this was particularly important because it meant it was then easier to fit the gun ports that I told you about. So she was a, a successful ship. She was also a very fast ship. She had um, what's called beautiful lines, but the uh, Admiral Howard, who was the Admiral at the time, set up a race for all the ships in Henry VIII's fleet. And the Mary Rose consistently won these races, finishing way ahead of the others. And the Admiral wrote to Henry VIII at the time in this wonderful flowery language, saying, Sir, she is the noblest ship of sail of any great ship at this hour that I trow to be in Christendom. So even the Admiral at the time thought she was a very iconic ship. She was also a very beautiful ship. The only certain image of her betrays her with flags and streamers and painted panels. And she had great character with this narrow waist and a large bow and stern. But I better not get carried away here with comparisons of beauty. But she was an iconic shape. She has very fine lines, if, if, uh, which means that she sailed really well. If you show her, uh, especially the underside of the ship at the bow and the stern, you can see the beautiful curves of the hull as it tapers at the front and the back of the ship. And when you show the ship to naval architects, they're always amazed by how fine the lines are um, co compared with other ships of the period or even later periods. Um, and she was really part of the birth of the modern navy. You know, before then, um, Henry VIII was given by Henry VII about five ships. But when he died, he passed on over 55 ships to his offspring, meaning that they had a navy uh, by, the, by the end of Henry VIII's reign. It meant they built it up so that they could win wars like the Battle of the Solent against the French in 1545 or the Armada against the Spanish in 1588. So um, although it wasn't called a navy in those days, they were called the king's ships because, because they, they, he owned them. Uh, he, he, they were his personal property. They, they didn't belong to the, the, um, you know, the Ministry of Defence or the Navy. They were actually his personal ships. He owned them and everything that was inside them. So absolutely an iconic ship in historical terms. She's also the only Tudor ship um, in the world ever recovered from underwater. But we'll come on to the archaeology and stuff later. So absolutely an iconic ship. But the other thing is, you know, the it's the collection of objects inside her that are also iconic. So yes, you've got uh, bronze guns and iron guns. And in fact, the bronze guns are beautifully embellished with crests and motifs. Um, like the Tudor Rose, but they also have the fleur-de-lis, 
because uh, Henry VIII is saying he's king of France as well as 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 well as king of England. And, and the lifting lugs, you know, that you would uh, use to if you wanted to move the cannon around and put them on board and take them off the ship. They're beautifully um, cast in bronze, but they're of lion's heads and mermen and so on. So, um, yeah, the guns are important. But to me, it's the objects of everyday life that are particularly iconic that we have in the Mary Rose Museum. We've got exceptional objects like um, a shawm, which is uh, a forerunner of an oboe. It's a musical instrument. Now, who would have guessed when, uh, before the May Rose was raised, that we'd find things like musical instruments on board that nobody's ever seen before? Um, the shawm, you might have seen in pictures, but we've actually got a real example of one that, that survived from 1545. Uh, the only example in the world. I mean, absolutely amazing. And what we've done, for instance, in the museum is we've created a replica of it, which has been played so you can actually hear it. And, and it's just wonderful. Yeah, an iconic collection. So we've got tables and pipes. The table and pipe is like a drum and a pipe, like a one man band that you play together. We've got two fiddles so that we've got these exceptional objects. But to me, particularly important are collections of objects that we have. So collections of objects in chests or found near to each other. So especially we, we've got professional equipment. Um, we've got uh, the barber surgeon's equipment. We found one cabin on board that was obviously dedicated to the barber surgeon. And in his chest were uh, jars of ointments, but also because he was called the barber surgeon in those days, we've got We've got the shaving bowl that he used. We've got his razors. We've got his ointments. Some of these ointments, I even remember one when it came out of the water and the lid was taken off to sample the contents. You could still smell the ointment. It was like a menthol smell. And to me, that is amazing that smells can survive from the past as well as just the objects. So we, we've got carpenter's chests with tools, uh, shipwright tools like adzers, and axes that they used to do a lot of their work with. We've got rulers marked in inches. We've got moulding planes, just like ones you'd find in amongst grandma, granddad's carpentry tools. We've got another chest with uh, items to do with uh, pilotry and navigation. It had in it uh, gimbaled compasses. These are the only known gimbal compasses from that period ever found in the West. Um, gimbling means that they're, they're sort of on a special pivots so that they stay flat even when the ship um, goes tilts from one side to another. We've got navigational dividers. We've got a log reel, which is a really clever instrument for telling the speed that the ship is going. We've got sounding leads that were dropped over the side to tell the depth of the water, but also used for pilotage in, in, um, in shallower waters. Um, so those are, are chests full of professional equipment, but we've also got personal chests which had things like shoes in them and the very ends of laces, um, lovely brass ends of laces. You and I might have little plastic ends of our laces, they're called aglets, but we've got these lovely brass ones. We even got pocket sundials, which were the latest must-have accessory, perhaps like an eye watch nowadays. It was a, a sundial that you could fold down the nomen, that triangular thing that the sun hits to tell the time, and put it in your pocket. We've got book covers. We've got rosaries. We've got 
these ro rosaries are paternosters. They're like a set of beads that you would have that you use to tell your prayers. So you would say um, 10 Ave Marias and then you'd do a paternoster. You'd say you'd do Hail Mary and then you'd say the Lord's Prayer. Um, and these are a very Catholic way of praying. And yet we found them on board the king's ship several years after they'd been banned uh, in England for saying your prayers with by rote. So, I mean, we've got this incredible selection of iconic objects. Um, but as well as, I mean, some objects you might not feel are iconic because they're so everyday. We've got a simple stool that um, you would just walk past in the museum because it's it's just like something your father or grandfather would have made in carpentry lessons in the 50s and 60s. Um, and yet it's the only surviving stool that we know of from that period. Um, and in, in incredible condition as well. There's, there's a shovel. In fact, I... Um, I haven't told you about my background, but I was one of the archaeologists who had the privilege of supervising the work from 79 to 81. And on one of the, my dives, I saw a piece of wood in the, in the silt. We've been excavating, we've been digging archaeologically in the silt. And I saw this piece of wood and I uncovered a bit more of it. And I uncovered a handle. And then I uncovered the whole wooden piece attached to this handle. And at the far end was the the end of the shovel. So, but what was amazing about this shovel, it's, it's carved out of one piece of wood. So it doesn't have a separate handle and shaft and blade. It's all carved from one piece of wood and very cleverly made from an oak tree. It's cleft, which means it's very strong because it, all the grain goes straight down the, um, the, the shaft and, it, and um, without breaking, it's, it's not been held together with with joints uh, and it's not been sawed, it's just been carved out of one piece of wood. And I, I remember this object particularly because I, after I'd excavated it, uncovered it underwater and done all the archaeological measuring and so on, I literally held it up on while I was on the seabed and looked at it. And it struck me that the last person that touched this was a Tudor sailor. And that, that was just so powerful. And, it, and it's an everyday object. What, what I think about the May Rose collection is that it, it's extraordinarily ordinary. Uh, and it's these ordinary things that haven't survived in other collections. When you go to other museums or stately homes around Britain, uh, you see things mostly that um, were owned by the rich and famous and the posh people. On the Mary Rose, we have a collection of objects used by normal people everyday objects that you don't see in in palaces and so on. We even found all the cooking equipment. Um, you know, that will interest many people. This th That museum is not about a ship, even though it's iconic. To me, it's these pots and bowls and ladles that are iconic. We, we even found the two cauldrons, enormous cauldrons, that could cook three or four hundred litres of broth each. Um, that were found, we found their brick there were cauldrons laid on a, in a brick ovens. And we even found 700 or so um, logs that we used to uh, burn beneath these cauldrons. The, the, these are, I mean, it's odd for me to say that there's 700, they're unique, but there's 700 of them. But nobody else in the world has Tudor firewood. Everybody else has burnt, burnt it. 
we've got a collection of Tudor firewood. It's unique. It's, it's iconic. We've got, we've got all the eating and drinking vessels. We've got wooden bowls, wooden tankards, leather flasks, pewter tankards. Um, there's a whole hierarchy of tankards and ways of drinking um, that we found all on one ship, on use on one particular day in history. And we've got the remains of the food that they didn't eat because the ship sank. We've got the pork, the fish, the beef and even venison, which would have only been used by the captain or the officers. And, and not just the food, but the, the sort of supplements. We've got peppercorns and plum stones. Plums didn't survive, but we've got the actual plum stones that um, would have been plums back in 1540. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Five, or prunes perhaps. We've even got the seeds of plants and weeds that were growing ashore at the time. I mean, it's absolutely incredible, really. There's a, there's a, a, a cliche uh, which is applied to many archaeological collections saying it's you know they bring history to life but it's absolutely true at the Mary Rose so uh, it's iconic for all these objects we've got on board but then it's iconic for education for educational purposes you know to, to be able to live up to that cliche of bringing history to life is is absolutely amazing history um you, you know is the is the the study of written remains from the past, so the study of writing and everything that's written. But archaeology is the study of the physical remains, what's actually remained of past people and cultures. And what is so great about the Mary Rose is that we've got all these physical objects which can illustrate history and tell their own stories. And that's what we try to do in the, in the Mary Rose Museum. It's, you know, it's iconic for all these reasons. It's also iconic for the development of maritime archaeology. 
you know, it was a, an absolutely pioneering project. Um, there was this uh, really visionary man called um, Alexander McKee, who started a project looking for ships in the Solent. It's an area off the south coast of England between Portsmouth and the Isle of Wight. He was looking there from the 1965 or so, but the final first um, major objects and pieces of the ship were seen in 1971. But it was not until 1979 when the, sh the project was changed from a, a fairly small operation, just outlining what there might be underwater, to being the most enormous excavation. And it was an iconic ex excavation. It's still the largest underwater archaeological excavation that has ever been done. Um, and that's 40 years later. It's still not been su surpassed. Um, for instance, some of the th I amazing things that we did is we used um, amateur divers or un un um, unpaid divers to do much of the work, very much in the tradition of archaeology in Britain over the last 100 years. So over 500 uh, volunteer divers were trained in how to work archaeologically underwater. And this, this, I think, really changed divers' attitudes from being finding things underwater was, um, you know, a finder's keeper's mentality to actually doing things for the benefit of all. And that's what was so amazing about um, Alexander McKee and Margaret Rule, who ran the project in the 70s and 80s, is that they did this not for profit. Um, you know, a, a charitable trust was set up. They didn't do it for profit, um, but they did it for the common good, I suppose you would say nowadays. Um, and it was absolutely iconic excavation. And, you know, as well as changing divers' attitudes, it changed the attitudes of academics and archaeologists. Because prior to this, um, I think they thought that uh, underwater archaeology was, was, you know, strange madmen going around with flippers and snorkels and masks, um, finding things underwater. But what we proved is that archaeology could be done underwater as well as it could be done on land. And it changed public awareness as well. It, it put, um, I suppose the long word is underwater archaeology on the map, but it, it made people aware that, you know, the seas around our coast are full of riches that belong to everybody. Um, and that, um, you know, previous attitudes of, of, you know, treasure hunting and that, that that was romantic should be adjusted to understanding that all of these things belong to us as a nation and we should care about them because they're iconic. So, um, I mean, really amazing. And some of the archaeology we did and um, that I was involved with is the dendrochronology, the tree ring dating. Um, you, we, we were able to tell what parts of the ship uh, were from the original build in 1509, 1510, 1511, and what parts of the ship dated to reconstructions and rebuilds of the ship in the 1530s. And, and you know, that is quite amazing. And it was possible because the wood was in such good condition. It was such good condition that you could even see the tool marks made by those carpenters in 1510 when they made the ship. You could even see the shavings um, of some of the, um, the, the wood made by their tools. Um, I mean, just, just amazing. 
So that's quite a few reasons that, that it's so iconic, but it's also iconic for the science of conservation. Uh, you can imagine that trying to um, conserve, trying to preserve for future generations something as large as a whole ship. Um, we raised the ship in 1982, and that was an iconic moment that many people will remember. But then there was the all the work in preserving this forever. Um, and it was uh, sprayed with this um, chemical compound. It's a water-soluble wax called polyethylene glycol. And that work spraying the ship uh, really developed te techniques used on other shipwrecks like the Vasa in Sweden. Um, but I think the May Rose is more iconic than that ship. And also developing um, a technique called freeze-drying of uh, some of the objects, the wooden and leather objects. Freeze-drying, you may have you will have heard of freeze-dried coffee. Well, um, it's the same process, but just applied to archaeological wood and leather. Um, very clever. So it was iconic for the development of conservation. But so it's all very well for me to say how iconic the Mary Rose is, but perhaps the proof of her iconic status comes from how the Mary Rose has been absorbed into popular culture. Um, the streets and bakeries and cafes and beers and wines have been named after the Mayrose. Even the local hospital maternity unit is called the Mary Rose Maternity Unit. So to me, that shows that people care about it enough that they want to name things after it. It's also been on, on stamps and coin, coin designs. It's been... Um, so the subject of operas um, and symphonies even. Um, and perhaps the, the, <laughs> the best example of it being brought into popular culture is, is when it's um, part of jokes and cartoons, like in national newspapers. Um, they're often cartoons. Um, quite often they're, they're wrong. They sort of say every time uh, the UK gets involved with any naval... Um, decisions and battles they say oh perhaps they'll even um, get the Mary Rose out of retirement but that wouldn't be very good because she sank on a maiden voyage but as I said she didn't sink on a maiden voyage she was actually a successful ship so sometimes the jokes actually get it wrong but she, there are if, if you're gardening if you're keen on gardening um, you'll know that there are roses and clementi and sweet peas named after the Mary Rose because you know everyone wants to get in on the act because the ship is so iconic it's even um, the part of the answer or the question in, in quiz shows like who wants to be a millionaire or pointless or university challenge or mastermind or whatever. And to me, it's when you get into these popular culture things that it shows that the Mary Rose is really iconic. There have been lots of television documentaries uh, uh, about the, the ship, which has, has helped her to gain this iconic status in the UK. But in fact, the... Um, uh, when we raised the ship in October 1982, um, the, uh, the raising was seen by 60 million people around the world. Um, so it was actually the world's, during that broadcast on the Sunday, the day before the May Rose came up, the world's first ever TV broadcast um, from underwater was made. I, um, I know because I was part of the salvage diving team that... that uh, 
um, raised Mayrose after working on the excavation. And I operated the camera for this. Um, and the, um, the images from this camera were uh, sent up to the ship above on a, on a wire. It was a camera on a, on a cable. And then from there, they were transmitted to South Sea Castle ashore with a microwave link. And from there, straight onto the um, outside broadcast BBC trucks that were um, on South Sea Common. And there it went out uh, to around UK and the world. So even that act of the uh, raising and the television broadcast was iconic. In fact, the mayor has even been the subject of feature films. Some of you may have seen, and if not, you're going to have to watch it now, a, um, a very odd film called Sahara, which is a bit sort of like an Indiana Jones tale of maritime archaeology. And um, uh, it's with Matthew McConaughey, who's the, who's the sort of lead um, person in it. It has a very strange plot. But what I need to tell you about is just that during the opening credits, it's a bit like a Bond film. There's an opening sequence and then the opening credits and then the main film. But in the opening credits, the uh, camera is panning around the salvage vessel that this um, maritime explorer is using and they borrowed from me a load of knickknacks to just sort of populate his cabin because they wanted to show objects that might be in a maritime archaeologist's cabin and as it pans round you can even see a photograph taken underwater on the Mary Rose although the visibility is so bad so there's this picture at the start of that film which flashes past the screen rather quickly but in their publicity they also had um a photograph of Matthew McConaughey with his sidekick and what they did is they actually took a photograph they that we already had of myself and my uh, colleague Alex Hildred and they actually photoshopped out our faces and put in the faces of Matthew McConaughey and Steve Zahn. Um, so um, I claim I'm the stunt body stills double for Matthew McConaughey. So anyway the point is to say it's iconic, so iconic that it even has a very minor part in Hollywood feature films. Um, in fact, oh, another American link, which I, I think, yes, again, proves it's iconic, is that um, one of the parables, a, a wooden um, object that's part of the ship's rigging, was actually taken up in one of the space shuttles, I think it was Endeavour, and went round the world a hundred times. It's, 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 or so, it's, it's covered millions of miles. And you might think, well, what were they doing? Why, why did a piece of the May Rose go round space. Um, but to me, the interesting thing is that even NASA thinks that the May Rose is so iconic that they wanted a piece of the Mary Rose illustrating the forefront of 16th century um, ship technology or um, the technology of transport to be in a 20th century icon of transport namely a space shuttle. Um, so, you know, even <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, even NASA thinks the Mary Rose is iconic. So how could you possibly think any other ship is more iconic than the Mary Rose? So she was, um, I mean, the, the other thing is how important she is for the local region. Um, uh, she was, you know, she was built in Portsmouth. She operated from Portsmouth. Um, she fought there, she sank there, she was rediscovered there 
Uh, she was excavated and raised there and the museum has been built just nearby. So she's very much a local ship. And the building of the Mary Rose and the world's first dry dock, which was built in Portsmouth just 10 years earlier, it really started the development of the city of Portsmouth as a naval base that would be um, uh, supplied from the local area. Henry VIII started this with, um, well, it was Henry VII started it with building the dockyard, but Henry VIII had to order the building of two new breweries and four or five bakeries just to supply his ships, the king's ships. So it's very important for the local region, but also for, for the local area, but also for the region uh, with that supply chain, with the um, protection of Portsmouth during the Battle of the Solent. It's got national importance as this iconic ship of an iconic king, and it has international importance, um, you know, with the, its effect on perhaps European history in that it was part of the build-up of a, a navy by an English king that ensured that we weren't um, invaded um, since 1066. We kept away future armadas. Um, and internationally, as I said, 60 million people saw this uh, iconic uh, raising of the ship in 1982. Then finally, it's, uh, you know, it's, it remains iconic because we built this new museum. It's a brand new museum, which you've got to come and see now. But this presents and interprets history in, a, in what I think is a completely new way. We've actually done it for non-museum goers. So it's really unlike any other museum because it's about people. It's not about a ship. It's not about this iconic ship. It's actually about people. It's about the people who lived and worked and enjoyed their time off perhaps, but also who died on this ship uh, 500 years ago. Um, it's about, you know, perhaps the, the ship, this is most illustrated by one of the shoes that we found that you can see in the museum. And it's so worn away that it's got a hole in the bottom. And when you look at some of these objects like the shoes um, and the combs, and a completely worn away shoe and something that's mended. You can empathise with these people from 500 years ago. And that is why the whole story, the whole project, the whole ship, the whole collection is iconic. So, in summary perhaps, you know, it's iconic for that history. An iconic ship of an iconic king. It's iconic for the ship design, for the naval architecture. It's a thing of beauty. It's iconic for the collection of objects discovered inside. It's inside this time capsule. It's iconic in terms of education. It's iconic for the development of maritime archaeology and the techniques of conservation. You know, the museum is for a 21st century audience, not just stuffy old and middle-aged people like me. It's, a, it, it, it's iconic and worth seeing for everybody. And it's, this has been proved by how it's entered into popular culture. Um, it's iconic at local, regional, national and international levels. In fact, to quote from a, a recent uh, a famous English historian, said, uh, the Mary Rose is one of the most important objects in English history. It's up there with the Doomsday Book, the Magna Carta and Hampton Court. And it's a jolly sight more interesting 
than any of those three. He was saying that it's the most important object, not just the most important ship, not just the most iconic ship, but the most important thing in English history. So come and visit. And if I can misquote the Admiral, who I quoted earlier, do remember, sir, madam, that she is the most iconic ship of any great ship at this hour that I trow to be in Christendom. Thank you. Well, I hope very much you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed listening to it, and your understanding of Tudor seafaring is now suitably increased. There will be more coming your way very soon, not least the second episode in our iconic ship series, which will be on a vessel from the past, but which no longer survives. Next up, we have Catherine Gray from the University of Plymouth, making the very strong case for the Mayflower. That's it for now. Do please follow us on social media. You can find the Society for Nautical Research on Twitter and Facebook. And the Mariner's Mirror podcast has its own Instagram and YouTube channel with some fabulous stuff on it for you to watch. Check out the Society for Nautical Research's page at snr.org.uk for the archives of the Mariner's Mirror Journal, which the SNR has been publishing for over a century. Please leave us a review on iTunes, but best of all, please, please join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk. Your subscription will go towards publishing the most important articles in maritime history and towards preserving our maritime heritage. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com code program.